So how many of you are uh, following along in, in Revelation? And uh, again, uh, I, I see some of you. Who isn't here last week? Haha, why weren't you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I, as I've been talking about, we put together each week just the simple, the, the book of Revelation, this little sheet. Has anybody ever received this sheet? It was handed to you probably like this, just flat. Does everybody have one of these? This will really help you out as we go through things. In, in review of what we've been talking about, uh, the, the book of Revelation, uh, Marcus and I were talking, or uh, I think last week, and he mentioned, uh, you know, this is the hardest book of the Bible, and I was going, well, maybe Genesis, no, it is the hardest book of the Bible to, uh, it's, you know, most of the Bible is that word perspicuous, it means that everybody can understand it. Why they chose a word like that to say it in theology, I have no idea. <laughs> but it's something that we can all understand, you know, you read John and Jesus says something and it's like, oh, that's what he means. And if he doesn't, if he's being, you know, kind of hidden in his words, a few verses later, Jesus is going to turn around and he's going to tell them disciples exactly what he meant, right? And one of the wonderful things about the scriptures, the scriptures usually define the scriptures. You can, if you don't know where something is in there, you can go to another place and find out what it means. It's awesome. And so, but Revelation, it's, it's hard. Like we talked about, there's a lot of sevens in there. There's a lot of these uh, crazy things. And, and obviously, uh, there's different thoughts throughout Christianity, even in different fringes of, of the faith. People go crazy, you know, on, on this book. And one of the things I was, I, I've noticed is that it's one of the least preached, preached books in the Bible. Everybody stays away from it. Or, you know, they want to talk about family and marriage and all these things. And, and I think that's great because it, it definitely applies to us, right? But when Jesus, he addressed the churches, what did he want to say? Check out these first letters here. He's writing the actual we're going through in Revelation. So uh, we're in a great book. It's going to speak to us as a church, as people. We're going to see a little bit of church history in there. And uh, the Lord, hopefully, our hearts will be open to what He's saying to us, and, and we'll change to what He wants, because it's what's best for us, and what's, what's, what's required of us, amen? <clears throat> and so as we look at Revelation, Revelation was given to who? To whom? Grammar. Jesus Christ. The revelation to Jesus Christ to reveal Jesus Christ is the re- revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelations, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Although there are many visions, it is one. It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It reveals Jesus. And there's a promise right here in your outlines. It's a promise. The book, uh, the book of promises promises a blessing to us, to those who read it and who apply it to our lives. You're going to be blessed. Who wants to be blessed? Man, I don't want to be cursed. I want to be blessed. I want to be like, hey, pour it on, God. I need all you have. Well, as we read through this, you're going to be blessed. That's what, that's what he promises here. And what's really cool about Revelation is, is how, however confusing it looks, it gives its own outline. It's the only book I know that gives its own outline right there in verse 19. In verse 19, I have it right here for you. The outline of Revelation, <clears throat> the outline's found. It says, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Pretty easy, three parts, right? And so the first part is what you have seen, and that was chapter 1 of Revelation. And what was in chapter 1 of Revelation? A vision of Christ. And seven attributes of Christ. It talks about seven different things of Christ, right? We've already been through that. Now, what's the second section? What is now? So 
the angel, Jesus told the angel to tell John to write these things. And so he's told to uh, write what you've seen and what is happening now. And so this, this section, this middle section, what is happening now is where we are in our studies. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And to me, I think it's the most uh, pertinent to us. It's going to apply to us because it's talking to the churches. What is now? The church. The church age. Now, so we're going to spend, like I said, one, one week in each of these letters. We're in, uh, there's seven total letters to the churches. Believe it or not, the number seven pops up again. And we're in the third letter this week to Pergamum, to uh, the churches, the third letter of Jesus to the churches. And so after that, we'll be, when, beginning in chapter four, will be the third section, the third division of the book. And that will tell what take pl- place later. That's when you get into all the crazy stuff falling from the sky and comets coming and all the Antichrist and all this great stuff, right? So that will what, that's what will take place later. And we'll get to that after we, uh, we'll kind of just roll right through that because I believe we won't be here to see that. And if we are, it's going to be interesting. Um, and so, <clears throat> uh, those are the, that's the outline. Here's some important things to note. And again, I want to review this. As we read the letters, each of the letters, how many letters are there? Seven, seven right? Seven to seven different churches. There's an outline to each letter, and I put it right here in your paper, the outline. I know it says outline of Revelation, but there's also the structure of Jesus' letter to the seven churches. That's what you should look at. And each of these things, uh, in general, make up the letter. So Jesus is going to start out with the name of a church, right? He's going to say, and this is significant. The first thing he's going to say is the name of the church, because usually the name of the church, what the meaning of that name is, has something to do with what they're going through. Ephesus, mean the desired one, the beloved one. Well, what was their problem that Jesus was trying to address? They left their first love. They left the Lord. And so he's trying to talk to them. So the first thing is obviously uh, the name of the church. And then an attribute of Christ from the first chapter. Jesus said, I am, you know, I'm the one who has a crazy sword coming out of my mouth and all this stuff. Well, this can be referenced. One of those attributes is going to be referenced in each of these letters. And again, what Jesus is, is revealing himself to the church because he wants them to know something about uh, who he is relates to who they are and what they're going through. So to Smyrna, the, the church we read about last week, remember their name means death? Kind of means implies death, and they were under persecution. It was the persecuted church. And God wanted to talk to them. He wanted them to know, I was, I was the one who was dead and is alive. So Jesus was encouraging them, saying, hey, the persecution you're going through, I've been through. So listen to me. And so the Lord gives one of these attributes of himself to each of the churches. Now this week, it's going to be, hey, I'm the one with the sword, and I'm going to come knock your teeth, and if you don't, you know, straighten up, pretty much. So... We, we want to look at each one of these uh, as they come. So uh, the, the third aspect is, is a commendation, what they did well. Hey, I know your works, the good things you're doing. This is great. Good job. And he commends them. Most of the churches, some of the churches don't have a commendation. Now, the next thing he goes, but I have this against you, the, a concern. Most of the churches have a concern that he goes over, something that they, have, they, they need to change, something that isn't right. Some of the churches, they don't have anything. If you notice Smyrna last week, the persecuted church, he didn't have anything he wanted to correct in them. 
The only thing he told them was to hold fast. You guys are getting beat up. You're going to be slaughtered. Hold on to me. That's the only thing I want you to do until the end is just hold on to me. Pretty cool, huh? Some of you guys need to hear that this morning. Some of you gals need to hear that this morning. Hold on. It's not any other burden I want you to have except for to hold on to me. And some of you turkeys need to repent, right? And so he's going to get to us types later, right? <laughs> so the, attribute, the concern, then he gives an exhortation, what you need to do to fix it. Remember the first, the first letter to Ephesus. What did he tell them to do? Three things. Three R's. Remember them? They left their first love, and so he told them, therefore what? Repent. Oh, you always put repent first. It's remember. Remember. Got to remember first. Remember where you have fallen from. Look back. Remember where you were. Repent means to turn towards, turn away from that, to change your mind and to turn towards God. And then redo. Start doing the right actions. Do Do the first things. And so those three hours he told them. So those are the exhortation he gives to some of the churches. He'll have different exhortations for different churches. Then he gives a promise to the overcomer. To he who overcomes, I'll give the promise, he'll give you, be able to uh, you know, eat of the, the, the fruit of the tree of life, which is in the paradise with God. And so he'll give them these, these interesting mystical type of promises that are really neat. Uh, and then he has a closing phrase. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, I'm, I'm repeating these things because I think it's important for us to, to know that God's put a structure in there on purpose. And, uh, and if, if we go by it and if we look at it, we're going to be blessed. And now, the next thing is the application. Remember how many levels of application are there? Everybody wake up, get the coffee in your mind. All right, four. So how does this apply to us? Remember there's a local application. What does that mean? There was a church, there's a real church that God was speaking to. And so these letters were to them, obviously. Then second, it was, it was to the churches. They were amongst themselves, were to look at each other's letters and see, how does that apply to me as well? So it also applies to CCF. We can read these letters and say, hey, is, does what apply to what Jesus wrote to Ephesus, does that have something to do with us? How about Smyrna? How about all these Pergamists, Laodicea, Right? Does it have anything to do with us when we take, you know, 25% of there, 50% of there, and does it have to do with us? And so it applies to us. Then the third is personal. He who has an ear, let him hear what God's telling you. And and this is the real kicker because he's talking about it's individually. What's God saying to the church? You're part of the church. What's he saying to you? Is he encouraging you? Is he exhorting you? Is he he telling you to change? What's, What's going on? And then lastly, which is the most kind of fun part, it's the prophetic part. Why these seven churches? Why? It's very interesting. There were several churches, hundreds of churches at that time in that area. Why did he choose these seven? And I think that the Lord, in his wisdom, chose these seven in the order that they are in, specifically because they kind of lay out a future picture of church history. And that's my personal take. You can... You can you can do whatever you want with that. But we see the letter to Ephesus, which was the first letter, kind of lays out the first area of, of, of church history from the time of Pentecost when the church began, the Holy Spirit fell in Acts, to about 100 A.D. And what was the message to those people? Hey, man, you're great at your doctrine, but you've left your first love. And that was what we see in the, the apostles, man. They were all about doctrine, knocking off the guys who were 
who were coming in trying to tweak things, but eventually they left their first love. They forgot. They were really great on the business of the king, but they forgot Jesus. How many of us are really great about the business of going to church and doing all the things, but when it comes to actually worshiping Jesus, we forget. We're good at being Christians. Okay, just me. All right. I wanted to make sure. You know what I'm saying? And so that first area of church history. Last week, and then we did Smyrna, right? Smyrna, which, which means, which was an incense that was, uh, it was like an embalming incense. They put it in, in when people die, and they'd wrap them up in it and all that stuff. But it meant the death, and, and its qualities would be uh, brought out when it was crushed. It, the scent, the aroma would come when it was crushed. And so this, this church in Smyrna was going to go into persecution. And so when they were crushed under the Caesars from around uh, 100 to 300 A.D., uh, for, for a while, they, they were, six million of our brothers and sisters were thrown to the lions or, or burned at the stake or crucified or killed or what have you. That's a lot of people back then, you know? When you think about the, the population of the earth, that, that's a lot of people. How, uh, you know, back then the population was a lot less. Six million people, brothers and sisters, died. I mean, we talk about the Holocaust, you know, which is a modern day uh, uh, tragedy. And and just an obviously um, total evil. But think about then when you had Nero who would line his, his streets with Christians and douse them in oil and light them and use them as, as lamps. Need ride around naked fiddling, you know. <laughs> I mean, dug out of his mind, total persecution of the church, and Jesus spoke to that church. So you have this that that the persecuted church, and I recommend Fox's Book of Martyrs, and we'll get into that again in just a few minutes. And so this week we'll get we'll kind of go into a n- another section of church history. I wrote it down for you, and so there's that prophetic application of what we're going through. So as you're reading. Um, you know, I, and as I'm going through each of the churches, I might emphasize one of one of these one of these applications more than another as I feel like the Lord's leading us. For this week, I think the historical um, aspect is is important to us. You know, as we look at this section of church history. But, anyways, so <clears throat> that's a quick review of what we're going through. Again, I put words and terms on there that will be um, applicable to today. And again, I, you know, another thing I wanted to bring out to you. I know that this is a hard book, and some of the same things I'm saying might go over your head. And again, I've had to uh, study because they have all gone over my head, right? And when you're down in it, you really know something, and then you start speaking to, let's like, say, someone who doesn't, hasn't even been, um, any of you a professional in a certain industry? Now, and when you hire someone on, do you start talking, what kind of jargon do you talk right? <laughs> it's like we all have a learning curve with language and all that stuff. So if, if there's something I'm saying you don't understand, ask me. Ask me. That's what I'm here for. Ask me. If, if, because it's, if, I'm not re, if I'm not communicating to you, if you're not understanding, if it's not hitting your heart, I'm missing the, I'm missing the mark. And there's the part of the disciples when they come and they went and asked Jesus, not that I'm Jesus. I'm asking the Lord. I'm asking other people all the time what things mean. But there's that relationship we should be asking one another, what does that mean? What does he say here when that happens? Not that I'm the final authority on anything, but we should be uh, like those Bereans 
as you hear the word of God, kind of going back to it and saying, is that really true? Is that, is that seeing if it was so? And they would search the scriptures and say, oh yeah, that, that does make sense. Or you know what? It's probably not. It's probably this. And so be a people who ask questions. Grow in your faith. Jesus, he would often say things to his disciples and they'd go, what? And then when they were alone, when they spent time alone with them, what, he, what would he do? He'd reveal. And so I, I challenge you to get along with your Lord and pray about these things and let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. Let Jesus be your shepherd. Let him teach you. And also the elders are here. We're here for you. Have a question, ask us. We want to we make it clear. So as we grow together, let's do it. Amen? All right. So chapter one, obviously, Jesus is, uh, is revealed. Chapter two, we begin the letter of the churches. And if we remember... Uh, Last week, we did the Church of Smyrna, and just by quick review, um, we'll, we'll go over that. To the angel of the Church of Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. So we're in verse 8. Who died and came to life again. And again, Smyrna implying death, and notice Jesus reveals himself as the one who died and came back to life. I know your afflictions and your poverty, verse 9, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. And so the Smyrna church was a very materially poor church, but what were they rich in? They were rich in the spirit. So important. And what did we learn last week? That, that material possessions are a poor indicator of your relationship with the Lord, aren't they? They're a poor indicator of, the, of, the, of, of, your, of your relationship with the Lord. Uh, you know, material status is a poor indicator of spiritual condition. So Jesus, who was the one who died and came back to life, he tells them not to be afraid of what they were about to suffer at the hands of whom? The devil. The devil was behind their persecution. Not this mystical guy with horns who lives in hell. A real spiritual being sent, set out to destroy you. Very real, very present, operating in this church against this flock. He was out to kill these people. And that's what he's here to do today to you in any way he can. And we'll get into that. But notice the Lord addresses the devil. The devil used persecution to try to thwart the church. He tried to persecute the church through death and torment and all these things, but it failed. It failed. I love one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, he coined a phrase saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You kill us, but it's only going to make us spread. It's amazing, just like Jesus died. Remember, unless a, a, a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it can't grow. So the, the death of the martyrs really helped the church grow there. And uh, they were under the persecution, the, jerk, the, the church, they were grew. They were very poor, but they were spiritually rich. But Satan... <clears throat> uh, would not change. Uh, th- but Satan, you found he changed his tactics soon in history. He changed his tactics. Instead of a full-on frontal assault, 
we're going to see that he changed his ways as he addresses the church of Pergamum. So verse 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And that's where we left off last week. Remember the second death. What in the world is the second death? The one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. There's a saying that sums up a theological viewpoint. And uh, if you are born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. Now, if you're dyslexic like me, that's very hard to say, so I wrote it down. If you are born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. Skipping ahead to Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, it defines what the second death means. It's very important when Jesus talks about death, you kind of want to zero in on that. It says, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. You can always write these down in, in your notes section on the back of your bulletin. It says, the death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. See how the Bible just defines itself? It's wonderful. You don't have to pretend of what it is. It says right there what the second death is. The second death is the lake of fire. What in the world is the lake of fire? It's the place where death in Hades or hell gets thrown into. Hell, the temporary holding tank for all those who are rebellious. Satan, his enemies, the Antichrist can be thrown into hell, right? And then hell and death, this whole place gets thrown into the lake of fire. The permanent deal. We'll get there, don't worry. But that's serious. Be- no, no, <laughs> Tim's all, I hope not. <laughs> no, we won't get there. We just, right, yeah, exactly. Well, our hope is, yeah, right. So what does that mean? Who's going to be in that lake of fire? Those who haven't, uh, weren't victorious. And, and we read about them in, in chapter 21, verse 8. Christ further uh, defines it in Revelation 21, verse 8. It says, but the cowardly, that word cowardly means fearful. Fear is the opposite of what? Faith. It says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts. Um, and that's interesting, that word magic arts means sorcery. That word sorcery, its root is in pharmakeia, which is where we get the word for pharmacy, which is what? Hello. Wow. You know, there's, again, I, there's a connection between the spiritual realm and and certain narcotics on this type of things. Yeah, there's a spiritual connection. You cannot deny it. Uh, you know, I've talked about Chief Shufoot and all these different people that shamans, they, they snort drugs to communicate with the spirit realm, and they do. And so be warned. Right here, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so the one who's victorious is not going to be hurt at all by the second death. So if you are born once, you die twice. That's unfortunate. But if you are born twice, you die once. So if you're born once, you're going to experience the second death. You're going to experience the second death. But if you are born again, if you're born twice, it's not going to touch you. Jesus tasted that for you. Praise the Lord. Amen. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes, puts his faith in him, shall not perish, shall not be chucked into that thing, but shall have everlasting life. 
Amen. That is our hope. That is, who is our victor? How are we victorious? Jesus. Jesus, that is it. So just a quick point, point, our brothers and sisters could easily have avoided being torn apart by lions in that second uh, and third century church. They could have easily been avoided this persecution if they just simply walked up to the um, local um, uh, idol that was made to or altar that was given to Caesar and put a pinch of incense in it. There was a, so the, the thing was that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is master. You can worship whoever you want, just as long as you put, as you worship Caesar, number one. They give you a little certificate, and that was like you go your way and put it on your wall or what frame it, whatever. I'm good for the year. Now I'm going to go worship God. All they had to do was take a little pinch of incense, throw it in the fire. And they avoided all that. Six million our brothers and sisters said, I can't, because there's only one Lord. I highly recommend Fox's Book of Martyrs. I put it on your book, your, uh, your, your sheet there. Uh, it outlines and highlights this time uh, in the church history from the apostles all the way through this and even beyond about our brothers and sisters who were persecuted. Uh, for the faith. It's very rich, very deep, and uh, it's very encouraging. It should inspire us all beyond our, our daily lives, you know, to get out there and live for him. And so to the angel of the church of Pergamum, verse 12, our, our book, our, our letter for today, write. Now Pergamum, remember, the names of the church have to do with the situation they were in. Ephesus, and we talked about that means darling. They had left their first love, the beloved, so they, that relationship. Smyrna, meaning death, obviously. They were persecuted. Now we have Pergamum, which means per is the suffix. It's in your sheet there. means mixed or objectionable. And gamos, meaning marriage. You know, as in polygamy. Uh, it's married to many, you know, so monogamy, married to one. That's a little definition there. So uh, it means mixed marriage. The church has a mixed marriage, an objectionable marriage. A marriage that isn't right. And so that's a very interesting, uh, you know, address that, that uh, the church is in there. Jesus, I think, by the Holy Spirit is addressing these things uh, for us today. Very important as we look at the prophetic application. Remember those four things of application? The local one to the churches, then personal, but then that world, that those, those uh, uh, the history timeline, the first one was, was Ephesus, and then Smyrna, Ephesus was the apostolic church, Smyrna was that second group, the persecuted church, which is right around 400, I mean, up until 300 AD, but now we're in this 300 to 600 block of church history. And so, because we will see what Satan could not do through persecution, he accomplished through compromise. Satan's going to come at you straight on and try to smack you upside the head. He's going to attack you full on frontal. But you know what? If that doesn't work, what's he going to do? He's going to get you to compromise. He knows you. He's studying you. And we'll, we'll go through that in just a second here. But these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus addresses himself as the one with the sharp, I'm the guy with the big sword. Pay attention. 
What is the sword in the word of God? Now, obviously in Revelation, we don't have it, but, uh, uh, you know, you can't, okay, you, if you're just reading Revelation, you go, okay, what's the sword? But if you know a little bit of scripture, we know from last week, what is the sword? The word of God. The double-edged, double-edged sword, if you remember, uh, you know, in Hebrews and in Timothy and all these other places. Uh, a very interesting tool. I want you to, uh, to circle this in the, in the little pamphlet I get, have given you. On the bottom left-hand side, I believe it is, it says re- recommended resources. Blueletterbible.com. Anybody use the internet? When you're studying the Bible, this is a, a really great resource. If I need something, I'll, I'll go there and grab it. But Blue Letter Bible, it just has an online concordance. And a concordance is, is how many of you know what a concordance is? Okay, a few of you. If you don't, it's okay. It's basically, if you need to know a word in your Bible, and you want to know everywhere where it is, you go to a concordance to find it. And so if you were looking at the word double-edged sword, you look at double-edged sword in the concordance, you'd find it, and they'd give you all the verses in the Bible where that, that, word, that phrase is. And so what's really cool about this website is you go there and you just type in double-edged sword under word or phrase, and it pops up all the verses that were there. So you could actually find out what in the world the double-edged sword was or, or how it refers to. And in this sense, it's talking about the word of God, and you'll see that in other verses like Hebrews and such. And, it, and Hebrews talks about it, it pe- penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, to the joints and the marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Word of God cuts right through the junk. Anybody? Need that? How many of you really know what's going on in your own heart, your own life? You know, and as we'll talk about in a few minutes... How many of you know how we're supposed to worship God? How many of you know what's acceptable? How many of you know what's, what's pleasing to the Lord? How are, how are we supposed to walk in God? How are we supposed to relate to one another? Who am I supposed to marry? How am I supposed to? Boom. It's going to cut right to it. It's going to give you guidelines, principles, show you what's going on. Yeah, there's the element of the spirit and wisdom in addition to that. But I'm saying when it comes down to it, it's the word. We all fall back upon it. It cuts us. It cuts us asunder so to speak. So he's, Jesus reveals himself as the one with the sword, so he means business. I know where you live, verse 13, where Satan has his throne. Whoa, is that, a lit- is that literal? Is that literal? Well, it, it very well could be. If we read in, in Daniel chapter 10 about the principalities and other places, I don't have time, so... But Satan is limited. He's not omnipresent. He isn't everywhere at once like the Lord can be. He's limited. His beings are limited. They have principalities. They have dominions. They have thrones. There's people, there's demons that, uh, like, for example, the prince of Persia in in Daniel chapter 10. There was a locality. And so very well, it could be that this is where Satan was hanging out in those days. But we know through Job and through other circumstances that Satan is is localized. He can't can't go wherever he wants. He's roaming to and throughout the earth. And so... Um, it very well could be. We also, uh, it could also be Satan's throne is the earth. Obviously, this is his dominion, the prince and the power of the air. This is his world. Remember when he tempted Jesus. What did he say to Jesus? Bow down and worship me and I will give you what? All the kingdoms of the world. I'll, gi- I'll give you it all. And Jesus did not argue with him. Why did Jesus not argue with him? Because it was true. It was his to give. Man forfeited it. Satan took it. And Jesus died on the cross to take that title deed back, and he's going to come back and, and get that thing. He's going to get us. Amen? Yeah. 
But it isn't done yet. But until then, it's his. This world, its systems are all messed up, and it's his. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has its throne. And it's the same with us today, the churches in the world where Satan has its throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives again. Now, the commendation. He's saying, this is what's good. This is what you guys did good. They were, you were true to my name. You guys remember the third commandment? Do not take the Lord of the, your God, his name in vain, right? I will, I will surely hold you, you know, not, not hold you guiltless if you, if you blow it. What do we think that means? Not to say God's name badly? Or do you think there's a little bit more to it? When he talks about his name, what, is he, what does that mean? All that he represents, all that he is. You're his creation. You represent, I'm not going to, you know, you don't mess with the family name. You don't bring, you know, disreproach upon Jesus. Don't take my name in vain. Don't live like a heathen. I bought you. You're mine. It's not just about the words of our mouth. That shows what? Jesus talks about the heart. So taking his name in vain is, is a lifestyle that lives contradictory to, to the cross. And so we think that just by not saying GD that we're cool. When in actuality, it's, it's deeper than that. It's our lives. Do we take the name of the Lord in vain? And he's saying, you've kept my name. You've held fast through, through trials in the days of Antipas. Now, he's not talking about the king Antipas, but he's, he's just talking about this, his faithful servant Antipas. He's probably a real person. Antipas means against all. So an against all odds, this guy was just for God, against all. No matter what, he is, is, he is focused on the Lord. Might be a play on words, might be a real person, I don't know. But no matter what kind of, I still am for the Lord. No matter what happens, I'm His. I'm living for Him. He's it. I might fall, you know, all these types of things, but he, he's it. He's my all in all. You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even under persecution. Remember, they were persecuted. If you just put a pinch of incense, you're good to go. Everything's good. But they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't bow, not even in the days of Antipas. Antipas, uh, you know, the other church fathers said that he was a guy who Again, a man who was faithful to the Lord in Pergamum and was locked in an iron bull and it was heated until he died. One of those great ways that people died back then. You know, it was just heated and heated and heated and he baked inside and he died. I mean, no, I'm not going to recant. This world is not my home. I love him more than I love this. And so he kept his name, even under persecution. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. What does this mean, the doctrine of Balaam, the teachings of Balaam? You read about Balaam in, in Numbers 22, 23, 24, and we learn about Sunday school, about the donkey and all that fun stuff, right? The donkey talks, he talks back to it, and so they have this wonderful trippy talking session between a donkey and a guy. 
But what happens is Balaam ends up, this, this foreign king from modern-day southern Jordan wants to get Balaam, a guy from Iraq, to come over and prophesy against Israel, to curse them. And so he gets up on the mountain, and he starts, and he starts, he has to bless them. But how many times do you think he ends up blessing them? Oh, good guess. Seven. He ends up blessing him seven times. He says, I can't, man. I cannot say anything, otherwise God's going to chop me in half. Because the angel of the Lord stood there with a drawn sword and said, you better, you know, I don't want you to go. And he went anyways. Anyways, but what he did do, Moses revealed in Numbers 31, was that instead of uh, doing curses upon him, he taught that king. He says, you know what, if you really want to get to him, what you need to do is just send, send your ladies in there and entice him that way. And so that's exactly what he did. Instead of a full-on frontal assault through the army and all that stuff, he just sent in the ladies, and the ladies started commingling, and they started having sexual relations. The guys started marrying the women, and soon enough, they were worshiping false gods, sacrificing idols and all that stuff. And, and what Jesus is saying is, hey, you know what? In your church, you have people who are holding to that doctrine. You have people who are saying, it's okay to... Uh, commingle with the world. It's okay to shack up with that non-believer. It's okay. This is as long as you're tolerant. It's okay if you know if you compromise here and there. It's all right. So what? The world lies. The enemy is so subtle. He's been studying you. He knows us. He knows what will draw you away from the Lord and what if he's come after you with a full-on frontal assault and you've survived it, great. Well, get ready for compromise. He's going to come into your life, and he's going to give you things that will draw you away to the Lord. I don't care what it is. He will find a way. Know your weakness, because he's coming after it. The Bible says that he's like a roaring lion. He's stalking his prey. He's walking back and forth. He's looking for the weakness in you, and he will attack. And his purpose is to seek and devour. And if he puts someone shiny and pretty in front of you to do it, he will do it. Be aware. You have that emotional need in your life, be aware. The enemy knows this and he will play upon it to draw you away from the Lord your God. God wants to put you th- give you things in your life that draw you closer to him. So let me ask you, is the relationship that you're in, not talking to married people, is the relationship that you're in drawing you closer or further away from the Lord? Are the relationships you're engaged in drawing you first, further, closer or further from the Lord? Are the things that you are preoccupied with drawing you closer or are they pushing you further from the Lord? Be aware. Compromise is at your door. In that church, in that century, what happened? Constantine came in. We're looking at 313. He came in and you know, some say he converted on his deathbed. Some say he came in uh, and was a Christian right away or whatever. But basically, he, he, he uh, made Christian popular, Christianity popular. He, he made it to where it wasn't illegal to be a Christian. And soon enough, you know, a couple of emperors later, you know, it became the state religion. And then you had Christian... Christians in politics, and you had Christians in the church, and, and, and you, the churches were filled with people who you, know, you couldn't tell who was a Christian and who wasn't a Christian. And because it was still a secular society, and there were Romans and all these things, they decided, okay, well, let's make Sunday the day of worship. 
I know this is kind of, this may be where our brothers, the SDAs, have it right, all right? Who cares? We worship God every day. If we choose today, then we do. Amen? But there was a, there's a real history of the church compromising. Babylonian traditions, the sun, the three, the groups that worship the sun on Sunday. And so the slaves got a day off and all these things. And then, and then all of a sudden, these traditions of the Babylonians and this pagan worship and this pagan society got adopted by the church. We're about to go into one right now. Christmas. The, sun, the winter solstice. Now, this isn't Tanakh. I think Jesus could be in any season, right? We, we, we lift up Christ no matter what. But the winter solstice, if you think about it, that's when they worshiped, you know, the gods and all these types of things. And, and, and there was a special little guy named Tammuz who was an infant child that they worshiped who died but rose again on the 25th. And to celebrate, you know, I mean, to, in his death, they, they burned a Yule log. But the next day, they had a trim tree there to celebrate life and, and a little, and, a, and another Yule log that wasn't burned. And so the church decided, you know, through, hey, well, okay, well, we'll just take this and we'll Christianize it. Make it about Jesus. And now we're all upset because they're taking Christ out of Christmas. <laughs> it never was in the beginning. Jesus wasn't born in winter. You know, we, we, there's so many things. Easter, Ashtaroth, the worship of another guy. It had to do with fertility. Lent. I mean, there's so much that the church compromised in and the world became a part of it. it kind of gets you thinking, huh? You guys will feel a little bit nervous? Let's sing some Christmas songs. <laughs> Got Christmas trees in here, right? Now, how do we as Christians live with it? I don't care what season it is. I'm going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And if this tree means to me that Jesus is alive and is risen and, and the presents are his gift and I can, I can allegorize it, okay. You know what I'm saying? Bring Jesus into every single circumstances. But know the truth. Jesus is saying, how do you know what's mine or not? Right here. Celebrate Christmas. Devote a whole month to it. It's not in there. But we can take the opportunity to remember that Jesus came and he was an infant and he became a person, right? He, he put God with, with meat on him, you know, incarnate. He came and he bore our sufferings. He was made a little lower than the angels and all these fantastic things we get to focus on that encourage our faith. But you see, the church, they, they had started taking these foreign things and they started actually worshiping these other gods. See, that's the thing. They started worshiping these other gods. That's the differentiator between us. We have customs and traditions and culture, but when we take it a step further and we actually worship these other things, we've got trouble, right? So we've got to be careful. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Let's just finish it right now. He talks about the doctrine of Balaam, and then he also talks about... Uh, you know, well, the, the church of Pergamum means a mixed marriage, an objectionable marriage. And it's a picture of that time period where the church became married to the world. And he goes off at the end here. 
It says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, the priesthood. So we've got this picture of bringing all these pagan practices into the worship of the church. We've got the priesthood being set up. And then next week we'll talk, probably talk a little bit about the Catholic church. But don't worry if you're Catholic background. The next week we hit the Protestants, and they, Jesus has nothing good to say about them. So, <laughs> all right. So uh, that's from the historical part. But what is Jesus saying to us? This is the important thing. What is Jesus saying to the church? Who are you married to? Have you compromised? Are you letting the world in between us? How do, I, how do you know who, what you're supposed to do? The sword of the word. Go into the word. Be people of the word. Let them cut you. Let them, let them give you that discernment. Let them cleanse us. Amen? And he gives a promise at the end. I'll just read it out of here because I, I can't even find my notes anymore. And he says, he who has an ear, well, it says, be faithful even to the point, I'm sorry, that's a different one. He says, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear. Wait, actually, after he says that, he says, repent, verse 16. So obviously the remedy is to repent. So God, that sounds like Jesus to me. Therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It means business. When Jesus fights with the sword of his mouth, heads roll. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. The hidden manna. The hidden manna. Who is the hidden manna? It was a mystery back then. It, manna means what is it? That's what they called it. But we know in John chapter 6, Jesus talks about, he says, I am the bread of life. I'm the hidden manna that comes down from heaven that feeds our souls. Jesus is the, I'll give you me. It's awesome. And he says, I'm also going to give you a white stone. What's the white stone? It could have been a couple different things, but the stone of acceptance. They'd give people a white stone to get into the games, the Roman games, give them some bread and, and get them into the door. But with, with your name written on it, a name only you and I know, that personal name. Jesus died for us as CCF, but he died for you. And he has a name he wants to give you. Be an overcomer, persevere, focus on Jesus, listen to what the Spirit says to the church, and repent. Some of you have let the world dominate you. You've let the relationships that are ungodly come into your life. Repent. You're putting things, you're, you're, you're focused on TV and all these other things that, that are pulling you away from the Lord. I'm not trying to be legalistic, but really just focus. It's okay. I mean, if you watch TV or video games or whatever it is, but I'm just saying, is it pulling you closer or further away from the Lord? And that's how we have to gauge things. Does this please the Lord? And let it, let it change us. Guys, this is the church in America, the compromised church. We are compromised. We're not the persecuted church. Sorry. You know, we talk about China, maybe, you know what I'm saying? But I mean, there's some things in here for us, for me personally, for our church, for the nation as a whole, and we should be praying accordingly. May the Lord help us, amen? amen. Not saying that judgmentally, I just, Lord, help me. I'm an American. I need you, Lord Jesus, to change me and make me not a citizen of the United States, but a citizen of heaven. 
So let's pray. Father, thank you for this flock, Lord, of, of sheep, Lord, that we are all part of. Thank you that you are our good shepherd and you come to us with grace and mercy. And that we have, we're able to hop on your feet, uh, hop onto your lap, Father, as we, as we need help in time of need and we need your help. Help to change, help to see what's right in our lives. The things that blind us, Lord, will you illuminate us. Pray for this body, Lord. I pray for the person in this room, or maybe more than one. I don't even know. I'm just feel like you you want to encourage someone in this room to let go of the world and come back home. You've been enticed. But the Lord Jesus wants you to come back. Give your heart to him. Do whatever it takes to cut off the world and come back to your Lord. He loves you. Father, encourage your church today. Help us to be with you and to know you. In the name of Jesus, amen.